0: This is the 12th sermon, working through the pastoral epistles. I was looking forward to preaching this sermon, and one of the reasons why I love expository preaching, working through text, is that I don't get to choose the subject. Um, because we all have subjects that we would navigate towards or lean toward, uh, the text tells us what to preach. Tammy asked me last night, she said, What are you preaching about tomorrow? And I said, well, I, I guess it's about a lot of bad people doing bad things. I mean, that's the—it's pretty much the text. So we're going to find the redemptive quality out of that text this morning. Uh, but then really looking forward to uh, the, in the next series, uh, we're going to get into what Paul talks about Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture. But this morning, reading the words from the Apostle Paul to Timothy when he says, But understand this having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people." That's the list. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, he's speaking to Timothy, You, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And our goal this morning is to find the redemptive value uh, in these verses. Let's pray. Father, this morning, your word is uh, God-breathed. It is forever settled in heaven. The prophet said that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. The writer of Hebrews said the word of God is able to make alive and it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And we ask you that that word this morning would be made manifest today and would be revealed through my very feeble attempt To communicate glorious truth, but it is possible this morning through your anointing, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are living in very unusual, perilous, uncertain, turbulent, troublesome times. I wish it weren't that way, but we are living in a very unique place in history and in our lives. At some level, every generation has lived through hard times. It's not like we're the first generation, even in this country and in the history of our lives, to face difficult times. It amazes me how that, when something hits, once it goes away, we kind of forget about it. I mean, in the 1860s, The Civil War ripped this country apart. To us, it's history, but if you were living back then, uh, it would have been a very difficult time to be in. I think about the people who lived from the early 1900s to the middle part of the century. Think about what they experienced in their lives. 1914, World War I, the 1930s, the Great Depression, the 1940s, World War II, The 1960s brought about Vietnam and cultural change and revolutions. The 1970s, mass inflation, crazy high interest rates. Like we're kind of there now, but we've seen it before. Uh, That's what they lived through in the 70s and early 80s. Those were hard times, gas lines, just to get enough gas to make your next stop. The early 90s, I remember the fear Uh, that I had as a teenager in the early 90s when Desert Storm came and that first Gulf War and all the impending quote-unquote prophecies about what was going on. And then the early 2000s, the dot-com bubble, 9-11, we remember those times, they were difficult. The Iraq War, the second Persian Gulf War in 2003 that lasted several years, 2007, 2008, the greatest global financial crisis since the Great Depression that affected a lot of people. We've seen difficult times before. But every one of these that I mentioned just now were either a financial crisis or a war. And those things have been going on since the beginning of time. That's just how the world works. There's always been war. There's always been ups and downs in a nation's economy that affect people like us. It was times of difficulty that dealt with power structures, government, business, conflict. And not that we still don't have these issues, but the monster that has come out of the closet of hell is the power structure of evil hearts that have united together to mock God and mock his word and mock his people now more in a different way than what we've seen in our lifetimes. That's been the fundamental shift. Now, it's, again, not the first time this has happened in our world. There's always been evil in the world. There's always been evil in our nation and in our communities. But the difference is that we are now fighting for the heart of a nation and the soul of our community in a way that is different from any other time in our lives. It is a fight. We are divided as a nation. I would love for everybody to to come together to unite, but we, we have a stand, we have a principle, we have things that we say we would like to be a united people, but not at the cost of compromising these particular values. So if it has to be that way, then we will fight for what is right. So Paul writes... Understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And he's referring to, he's not prophesying about something that's to come, and I'll show that in the text. He's referring to the time that he's writing in, because the early church considered themselves to be in the last days. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, These things happened to them as an example, speaking of events past in the Old Testament, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul is telling the church in Corinth, the end of the ages have come upon our generation. 1 Peter chapter 1. He, meaning Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, for the sake of you. It's not the only place that scripture will indicate that the last days are marked or indicated by the coming of Jesus Christ. So biblically, the last days are defined as the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter one, long ago, again, they're referring back to Old Testament, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, Present time, as the writer is speaking, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, again, the Christ, the Messiah, his manifestation in this world is what marks biblically the last days. So, Paul and Timothy lived in the last days, and so do we. We are 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ than Paul and Timothy were. I don't know if we are in the last of the last days. Every generation of believers, especially the past few hundred years, have believed they were at the very, very end. And it is common and it is right to think that at some level we must believe it is possible and even probable for the Lord to return in our lifetime. I think this is what the Bible indicates is that we should look for the coming of the Lord in our lifetime. And he very well may and He may not. So we live like he's coming back tomorrow, but we also conduct our lives as if we may die in this life. A post-millennial view of the end times would argue that the world will be Christianized before Christ's return. I have friends, good friends, who believe this. I don't subscribe to that idea. I'm not convinced from scripture at all. Um, But what I do pray is that before christ returns that the holy spirit would baptize this nation in this world with a revival that can only be brought by the sovereign work of the holy spirit and we if that revival is to come and revivals have come to nations in the past love reading stories about the revivals that happened in the 1700s the 1800s the 1900s revivals that no church, no group could conjure up through a series of meetings, but simply a sovereign work of God coming down and stirring the hearts of people. But that doesn't happen without the participation of the people of God. We are not passive, passive observers in that revival. Revivals throughout history have been brought about by repentance and prayer and fasting and biblical preaching. And We say, well, we're, we're already kind of doing that. Yes, but that is what God responds to in his time And in his choosing, we trust the providence of God to bring these things about. And our nation, oh, our nation needs a revival, a renewal, an awakening of repentance. We need a revival. I'm not hesitant to say that while I have a lot of respect for what Billy Graham did, I I have my reservations about some of the ideas that he communicated, not in his sincerity or his message, but uh, the idea of making a decision for Christ, that idea of, well, I made a decision for Christ, um, that scares me if it's not clarified because it's not a bad thing to make a decision for Christ. It's a wonderful thing. It's just not salvation. God does not justify the sinner based upon a mental decision or someone reading the sinner's prayer. Um, it's, it's more than a mental acknowledgement of, I believe in Jesus. It is, however, a good first step. It could be a good type of repentance. Uh, repentance is, means a changing of the mind. It means I've walking this direction. I've turned around. I've started walking that direction. But um, People may get up in the morning and decide, you know, on a whim, I might go buy a new car. or I might go get a new hairstyle. But nobody gets up in the morning and on a whim decides, I think I'll follow Jesus today. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, no one, Jesus said, comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. But it is, it's a good first step. And I'm not, I'm not discounting what he did. Uh, but in a three-week span of time in 1963... In the famed Los Angeles Coliseum, in, one, in a three-week period of time, nearly one million people packed into the Los Angeles Coliseum to hear Billy Graham preach. On the final day of the event, I saw a picture of it. And you know the, the football games they would house there would have the people obviously all around the bowl, but this was the people all around and then on the, on the field. I mean, Graham is like in the middle of a sea of 134,000 people that packed into the LA Coliseum. That would be unheard of today. You wouldn't see it. He packed out Madison Square Garden. He filled Yankee Stadium. I don't know how God would send another revival. I'm not God, but God, and and this is a prayer for us to say, God, help our nation to hunger and thirst for righteousness in a way that leads them to repentance and leads them to a place of saving faith that unites them with Christ and leads them to a life of allegiance that is devoted to Jesus Christ in a local church. That's my biggest thing with parachurch ministries is those people have to get connected to a local church. As Bill Hybels said, the local church is the hope of the world. It's going to be more than a one-time event at a rally. It's where can I get plugged in at and serve faithfully in a community of believers week after week after week, employing the ordinary means of grace. I hope... That when we read paul's description of the evils of the human heart going back to that description that it will feel foreign to us as believers and yet if we are honest we see that uh, that is a description either of our past selves or we see something here that is still remaining in our hearts that we need to clean from our hearts and our minds because we say that we are christians but we are only christians to the extent that we're like jesus and none of us are completely like jesus So we as believers don't identify with these descriptions. That's not us. That's not who we are. But we might see some remnants of that in our hearts if we're honest. We cannot allow and afford the reality of the darkness of this world to steal our joy because we have no promise and no assurance that anything outside of faith and outside of God's kingdom will have any redeeming value. It shouldn't surprise us that evil, wicked people do evil, wicked things. That's their nature. That's who we are by default. Paul in another passage said, and such were some of you before you were sanctified and saved. So we are called to be lights in a dark world and we expect the world to be dark. We aren't promised any level of heaven on earth. So we shouldn't be surprised or disappointed when a culture that is totally devoid of God ends up not only being secular, but being satanic and sinful and evil and depraved. That's just what people do. That is the nature of our human heart. But we, Romans 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not just the glory of God, but in the hope of the glory of God. So going back to these verses, I counted 19 descriptions of how the man or woman can be evil. Paul lists 19 things. For people will be lovers of themselves. Kingdom people, on the other hand, we don't ask what's in it for me. We walk into a room and say, what what can I do for other people? How can I give? We're not self-centered. Lovers of money. It's a major relevance to us living in this area because there is a temptation to be materialistic minded. I think Paul is pretty clear throughout the writings that he writes to the churches that we are not to love things. We are not to be materialistic minded. Proud. That is a sin that aligns with the Satan himself. So God, help us to be humble people, to not elevate or think more of ourselves than we should. Arrogant. I'm better than you are. That is at the root of all racism. It's at the root of people who bully other people. That doesn't stop in school. Adults and workplaces bully other people. We see it if you've ever worked in any Job at all, you see it. I've I've talked to friends who've served on staff at churches that say, I've I've seen bullying and abusive behavior. Uh, Why? It's because there's arrogant people. Abusive, hurting other people with your words or your actions. Mental, physical, they're abusive people. Disobedient to their parents. Uh, This is at its root a rebellion does apply to parents. It also applies to a lot of other areas that at the heart of that is rebellion. What does the Bible say about rebellion? It is as the sin of witchcraft. Ungrateful. The people of God should be flowing with thanksgiving. A friend of mine tells me that he writes down every single day 10 things that he's thankful for every single day of his life. And I said, Think I'd run out of things to say and he said no he said some days it can be th- you're grateful for the glory of God he said other days I write down that I'm thankful for tacos and he's being very serious he said I am thankful he said and he said this is about a mindset he said because it stops you from complaining so much These people just complain about everything he goes no he said the mindset of a believer is he goes every day he said I keep a journal he said and some days I don't have anything else to write but I'm going to write 10 things I'm thankful for Paul said, unregenerate people are ungrateful. Our sinful nature defaults us to being an ingrate. Unholy. God is holy. We are not. We are called and required to be holy. We are called to absolute perfection. You can't get into eternal life without absolute perfection. That's the calling, to be holy like God is. And that's a problem because none of us can live a perfect life. And that's the imputation of Christ's righteousness, God's nature. Christ imputes his righteousness to us. And God fills us with his Holy Spirit to give us a holy nature so that when I'm saved, I'm not saved by my works, but I'm saved by proxy. I'm saved by Christ's righteousness, God's holiness revealed to our lives. We are holy through his holiness, heartless. We see this in how people treat other people. I it's amazing what comes up in your recommended feed and YouTube, and this thing popped up and I watched, and I won't go into detail, um, mainly because I just don't want to talk about it, um, about this person's interview about how they were treated as a child. Um, they, it, was a, it was a satanic cult, and so you can put the math together about what this uh, young woman endured um, throughout her entire life childhood being sold by her parents um, heartless. Like how could a human being do that? It's because given over to our own devices, um, there is no limit or depth to the level of depravity that the human heart can reach. That's why we need Jesus heartless, unappeasable. In the context of how Paul uses this word I think if you look it up in the dictionary, it'd probably be a little different, but the word that Paul uses, it refers to an unwillingness to forgive. That's the what unappeasable in this context means. He says, people who are not regenerate in the gospel, they don't forgive other people. Slanderous. Have you ever been slandered? Like somebody says something about you that was not true. It hurts. It's not happened to me a lot in life, but it has happened. And when it's happened, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, if I'm going to be accused of it, I might as well have just done it. Like, if I'm going to be guilty of something, let me be guilty of something. Like, I didn't do that. And what's your reaction? Your reaction is to strike out. I mean, you just like, you want to hit back. slandered. This happened the last few months in a church where the pastors were removed from a certain church organization and their name was pretty much ran through the mud and the pastors in self-defense they had recorded the the hour-long phone call where they were fired and they released the phone call on YouTube Uh, and I listened to it I listened to the whole hour of it and uh, a lot of times things are taken out of context but it was hard to take stuff out of context when you hear the phone call from the beginning to the end. And they said, we are here to defend ourselves. We were treated unfairly. My response to that's been, I think you should let Jesus do that instead of releasing the phone call. And I probably would have released the phone call because I'm not always like Jesus. I think I would have done what they did because I would want to defend myself. I'm not sure it's the right thing to do, but I think my knee-jerk reaction would have been, yeah, I want the world to hear this. Why? Because no one wants to be slandered. People who level false accusations against other people are being evil in this way, without self-control. Now, we look at this and we go, well, I'm not a heartless person. I don't think I slander other people, but do I have self-control? No one is completely in control of their own lives. None of us do even the things that we want to do. We all want to do things that we don't end up doing that would better ourselves, There's a whole psychological element to that, that I'm not going to go down that road. But um, Paul says that those people are without self-control. That the people of God should have a level of self-control that's empowered through the Holy Spirit. Brutal. God's work in your life will make you tender-hearted. This is true for men as well. Tender-hearted and gentle in a way that is godly, that is not a weakness, but that is an aspect or characteristic of God. Ephesians 4:32, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Paul's command is to be gentle in a way that pleases God. It is not a weakness if it's done in the Spirit. Not loving good. Uh, we, we learn to love what is good and right and holy and just. We love good things. Treacherous, Paul uses it in a way that means to betray kind of goes back to the slandering, like we don't betray other people. That's not what the people of God do. Reckless, rash, undisciplined, out of control, swollen with with conceit, self-centered, puffed up with pride. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Stop there for a second. It's not just lovers of pleasure. It's lovers of pleasure in a way that usurps the position of God in your life to where you love pleasure more than you love God. It is idolatry at its highest order. I have witnessed people make things that aren't sin, sin in their lives because of how they oriented it in their life. I have seen people make playing golf a sin. Is there anything sinful about playing golf? I I hope not. I played three weeks ago in 105 degree weather and it was miserable. Um, And I bowed out after nine holes, but... um, And I don't even know if you call what I do playing golf. I think it's something close to that sport. It's all the same equipment, same ball. I don't know that it's actually golf. Um, It's not a sin because of how often they played it or how much they spent on it, although that might have been a problem. The sin came in how it became the center of their life. That sport was, if you got with that person, that's what you were going to talk about. Their mind, when it wasn't occupied by something that they were on task, their mind swung back to the center, golf. You could put, insert into that, million other things. So what is at the center of your life? What does your life revolve around? If It is anything besides God's glory and God's holiness and God's nature and God himself. There is an idol at the center of your universe. Paul says you can't love pleasure more than you love God. It's properly orienting the things in your life so that God sits at the center and everything else revolves around it. This is something all of us must guard against. John Calvin gets quoted saying this often. If you go back to the Institutes that he wrote, he phrases it a little differently, but... Calvin's also not writing in English so it's a it's a translation anyway but what Calvin is quoted as saying is that the heart is a perpetual idol factory. Our heart is constantly just on a conveyor belt just spinning out idols as fast as it can. Anything to usurp the authority of God. It mass produces ideas, actions, obsessions that try to dethrone God as the highest order and priority of your life and the last part having the appearance of godliness but denying its power now this one's different this one's different because in the last verse it rings different than the previous 18 descriptions because everything that was before all 18 screamed I am not of God none of that's related to God the last one he says actually this one has a form of godliness there is an appearance of godliness godliness shows up. So what does that mean? If we go back to the Ten Commandments, the Third Commandment forbids us from taking the Lord's name in vain. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, I grew up thinking this meant one thing, a prohibition to using the Lord's name in a curse phrase. And that's all I thought it meant. Of course, that's not really what it meant there. Now, I think that certainly does apply. Like, I think that is violating that commandment, no question. But that's not what the writer was particularly referring to, um, although it applies. The Jews took this commandment so serious that they would not utter the name of God. So we have, we call it the tetragrammaton, the four letters that are the the name of God in the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H. There are no vowels, it's just an unpronounceable set of consonants. You Latinize that and you get J-H-V-H. So this is where we get Yahweh, or Latinize we get Jehovah. It's is where we get these, these names. But we don't really know how to pronounce Y-H-W-H because before the time of Christ, the Jews were so in fear of violating the third commandment of allowing the name of God to come across their unclean lips that in synagogue ceremonies, they started replacing Yahweh, the YHWH. They started replacing it with the the title Adonai. So they, they would substitute it. And so the, the way, and, and we think we're pretty close, It's Yahweh would be, I, I guess, a fair representation, but they've come up with at least 30 different ways that they could have pronounced this. And it's not really relevant or uh, that important, um, but they had so much respect for the name of God. And people today throw around God's name like it's a five-cent word. You nothing to hear the Lord's name taken in vain. You know, I was about 20 years old working in a, restaurant the guy walked up to the counter they had just came from church i knew what church he went to in town i knew his son he came up and said it was about 9 30 and we stopped selling fried chicken at nine o'clock he said i'd like a whatever it was three piece fried chicken i said i'm sorry i said uh, uh we stopped selling chicken at nine o'clock and he stepped back and he goes and i'm you know umbrella of mercy i'm quoting him i'm not using the lord's name in vain he said ah oh, for christ's sake And as the Lord is my witness, I looked at him. He didn't know I knew his name. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, do you think when the Lord's sitting on his throne and he orders fried chicken and they tell him that they're out of chicken, do you think he goes, well, for Dave's sake? And he said, no, I I don't (laughs) Don't, don't suppose. He didn't know what to say. It's like, I know you. I know what church you go to. I know you just came from church. I know you have church tonight your church is 300 yards from my house or where I grew up. It's like, I know you. You're the, you're the religious guy coming in here and like, God, don't say that. It's like, it's so common for people to, to say that. Uh, we don't throw that around as the people of God. We don't take the Lord's name in vain. We don't, we don't do that. But in, in this context, to use the Lord's name in vain is bigger than just this. It's to use it in a worthless way or to do something in the name of God. Coming in the name of Jesus in a way that is worthless, has no purpose, or only benefits myself. I regard prosperity preachers as people who use the gospel message to line their pockets. I regard those people as people who are using the name of the Lord in vain. There's just one example. Um, People who would use fundraising or charity to line their pockets. And they're doing it in an effort with a religious context. Uh, I would not want to stand in their place unrepentant on Judgment Day. The 19th description of having a form of godliness but denying the power is a way of looking at that third commandment. It resembles this sort of behavior. It can be people who look religious, but they aren't united with Christ. It can be people who line up to a set of standards in a church, they got all the outward put together, but their hearts are rotten to their core. They have the form of godliness, but they're denying its power. What is the power? The power of godliness. Like reading that, that verse, the power refers back to the power of godliness. Godliness has a power to it. That word godliness could also, we could also use the word piety, the devout practice of being a believer, that it's not enough to look the part, we must be transformed by the power of godliness. Our internal devotion must match our external declaration of who we are in God. Going to verse 5, that last phrase, he says, avoid these people. This is how we know that Paul was not just telling, foretelling of a time when people like this would exist. They are already here now. Paul said, Timothy, those people are walking among us now. They're probably even in your church. Avoid those people. They walk among us now. Paul says that both women and men are deceived to use and oppose truth. Let's look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Years ago, I was in a setting and I said something Uh, to a woman about a particular stereotype and she spun around she said you better explain yourself and and i did because she took great offense to what i had just said Uh, so when i see in verse six the phrase weak women i expect people to say paul you better explain yourself what do you mean by this are you being misogynistic like what's the deal here What, what are you talking about So when I engage a text like this, I rely on Bible commentaries more than I would for normal preaching. I kind of try to save those for last to kind of fill in the gaps. I use Bible commentaries mainly to make sure that I'm not off base. If I'm way out here on left field and everybody's saying it means something else, I'm probably wrong. All scripture must be interpreted through the context of the community of faith. You don't, we, we don't interpret Scripture on our own. It's done in community. So I did, and the input is consistent across the board. I engaged all different kinds of, of angles and different types of people to say, Paul, what are you talking about weak, weak women for? And the input is consistent. that Paul is speaking about, in this case, some circumstances that existed in his particular context. Because the first question I ask is, Are women more, today, are women more easily deceived than men? Um, I'd say, well, I think the state of American Christianity is, 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 is pretty suspect right now, and by and large, for the most part, it's men who lead in American Christianity, whether it be pastors or organizational officials, just the facts. Uh, And there's been a lot of deception in American Christianity. So men can certainly be deceived, and so can women. Uh, The argument is that women were less educated in the first century than men were, and they were more likely to receive other teachings, true and false. They were more likely to receive those teachings more readily than men. Now that is not conjecture. There's writings on this there is a second century Roman satirist that writes a lot of satire and comedy but he notes this that women were more apt to convert to other religions whether that be Christianity which we would applaud or Judaism women more readily accepted Judaism than men because if you're a man and you convert to Judaism as an adult male you have to be circumcised by 2,000-year-old practices, nonetheless, women don't have to be circumcised. There's a little lower barrier of entry there to consider if you're a woman. That's just the realities of converting to Judaism. But they also converted to pagan religions more easily than men. Now, we can argue, and I would agree, the lack of education among women was a mark against the society, but it was the reality of Paul's first century, first century world. Craig Keener, who is one of the leading modern minds on the Apostle Paul, argues that Paul is addressing a particular kind of woman, not all women. And I will add that although it should be a given, it's not just women who can be deceived and led astray by various passions. Men, women, boys, and girls, all people uh, certainly can be deceived by false teachers. Uh, All people can have a form of godliness, uh, but deny the power of that godliness. So we teach the doctrine... This is where the conversation of men and women come together. We teach the doctrine. Uh, for the most part, there are churches that would fall toward an egalitarian way of looking at men and women, is that men and women are created equal and they have equal roles. So an egalitarian culture would say that. Um, an egalitarian or a complementary church culture would say, and that's certainly how I teach, how I preach. What I believe the Bible is pretty clear on is that men and women are created equal, but they are not created with the same roles in the home and in the church, and thus the word complementary. They complement each other. They fit together. I mean, not to be crude or crass, and I'm not trying to be funny, but I think God demonstrates this in a very physical way. It's like God creates men and women differently to fit together. Nothing crude about that. It's holy. It's God's nature. The order of creation says, I'm going to create men and I'm going to create women and they're going to be equal, but they're going to be different and they're going to complement each other. So men and women in churches and in the home have different roles. That's why I argue for male-only eldership and pastoral ministry because the Bible argues for that. I don't know how I could walk away with a different interpretation. And the argument against that is, well, Paul is appealing to, uh, or Paul is speaking of his particular context. Like in the first century, there's no way they could have let a woman preach and pastor. Well, the problem with that is, is that if you read that in the context, Paul's appeal, at least twice, is to the order of creation. Paul's appealing to how God created the order. Adam and Eve, 1 Corinthians 11. God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. It is an order of creation that our culture can look at and say it's discriminatory, it's misogynistic, and say, well, you call it whatever you want to, but I'm a Bible person, and the Bible says this, and I don't think we're misinterpreting, like the the order of creation on how a society, a church, and a home functions in its best, most God-pleasing way is in a complementary manner. The idea is deeply rooted in Scripture. And the attack on gender in our world is an attack. It's not a political conversation. We've made it a political conversation. It is a biblical conversation. It is a God conversation. And the attack on gender is an attack on the very foundation of the home, the nation, and the church. So Paul writes, verse 8, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed. truth. so now we have men. Now he's targeting men. There are men who oppose truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But I love this verse. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Now Paul turns his attention to men who oppose the truth. And Paul has in mind people who creep into houses and bring deception and oppose truth. Now, I'm a pretty peaceful person. I am, I'm not type A, I like to be diplomatic, but if someone breaks into my home at three o'clock in the morning, um, doing what Paul's talking about, creeping into my house, I mean, it's not going, I, I hope it's not going to end well for them. I'm gonna do everything at my disposal to protect my home. Right? You, you are too, um, you're gonna to go into fight mode and none of us would allow a stranger to walk into our house and do this but who do we let creep into our houses in a different way who do we allow creep into our homes to bring mindsets and deceptions and oppose truth that's something to think about they have a form of godliness but they have a different voice than that of the great shepherd. Paul said, they won't get very far because they're going to recognize these people for who they are. Hear the words of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a promise. That's a promise from Jesus. If you're his sheep, you're gonna know his voice. You're gonna follow him. You get eternal life. You're never going to fer- perish and no one is going to snatch you out of his hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And he says, I and my father are one. God's people know the voice of the shepherd. What I would pray for this morning is a gift. This is one of the gifts of the spirit listed in, in 1 Corinthians that Paul talks about that we believe is, is for the church today. The gift of the discerning of spirits. God, give us, grant us the gift of the Spirit through your Holy Spirit to know the discerning of what is truth and what is error. Reading the last section here. I'm going to move. I'm not going to read all this for time's sake. But Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. I won't read the rest of that. The way to not be the kind of person that Paul describes in these 19 descriptions, the way to not be that is to be a disciple. Timothy, you follow my teachings. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. What does it mean to be a disciple? Paul's four generations. You've learned from me, Timothy. So there's Paul and Timothy. Says, I'm teaching you Timothy, Timothy, you go teach other faithful men who can then teach other faithful men. There's four generations of believers. Paul, Timothy, who Paul who Timothy teaches and Timothy's grandchildren in the gospel. Four generations. That's what Paul's talking about. Timothy, you followed my teachings. What is Paul teaching? It's not his own doctrine. He's teaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's teaching the gospel. He's teaching we must die daily and follow Jesus. He's teaching we must be united with Christ. He's teaching everything that it means to be a Christian. And he says, Timothy, you're not like these people because you follow my teachings. You are a disciple of Jesus. You mirror me in your conduct, in your faith, in your love. We have lost the art of mentorship in life. We've lost this art. We've segregated. One of the biggest issues I have with churches segregating ministry by age group. We're going to send our kids over here. We're going to have our adults over here. Our seniors can go over here. And I'm like, okay, where in the body of Christ is the time given then to obey what Paul said and say, young women? You learn from the older women. Older women, you teach the younger women how to be women. We want to obey scripture, obey those scriptures. Where is the time for that if everything is segregated? Mirror me in your conduct, follow me, find somebody, set your mind. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a bold statement, but it's as I follow Christ. If I stop following Christ, go somewhere else, find a different mentor nobody is worth following to go to hell over whatever is true whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise Paul said think on these things now I close with this idea the kind of people that Paul describes in this chapter are the kind of people that end up killing Paul Paul dies a martyr at the hands of people who are like what he describes. He doesn't defeat these people in this life. But in the age to come, Paul is victorious because Jesus is victorious. But in this life, Paul says, we might suffer under the hands of these people. So hear what he says later on. This is in the next chapter. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So, what do you mean, Paul? The Lord's going to rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely into the kingdom? Someone might say that that statement didn't age very well. Paul, you lost your life. Tradition says you lost your head. You were beheaded. Uh, Paul, you were wrong about that. Paul would smile and say, no. He did bring me safely into his kingdom. He did it through an axe that severed my head from my body and ended my life. But in that moment, I was safely home in his kingdom. And then he closes, to him be the glory forever and ever amen let's stand father we we close this service close this uh, this text by offering you thanksgiving and honor and glory that all of us at one point in our lives found us found ourselves unregenerated without hope, without the gospel, without you. And these 19 descriptions, there's no doubt when I read these that all of us, including myself, we've seen past versions of ourselves in these descriptions. But such were some of us because now we are washed, we are sanctified, we are redeemed, we are justified, counted righteous in Christ through the blood of Jesus. And we thank you for that today. Lord, we ask you this morning that while we may suffer in this life, no guarantees that we won't, but that we embrace Paul's promise that you are going to deliver us safely into your kingdom, that no one, no person, no situation, no circumstance can rob us and deplete us, deplete the joy that we have in the hope of the glory of God. We have faith this morning because we have hope that neither life nor death nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So we pray this morning, Lord, as we dismiss and as we go our separate ways, that throughout this week that we would be mindful uh, to live a life that doesn't just have the appearance of godliness, but that has the power of godliness, that we embrace the power uh, that living godly lives brings every day. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be lights and witnesses. I pray for the circumstances that uh, people walked in here with this morning, the weights, the burdens, the struggles uh, that you would grant strength to endure and to become victorious in all these things so that we can live lives that glorify your name. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.